Let's get legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association here on WGN. So thrilled to be joined by Professor Leroy. We chat with him often when we want to talk about the Supreme Court or labor issues. And Professor, I really appreciate you giving us some time here today. Happy to be with you, John. Yeah, and it's nice not to talk to you the moments after major Supreme Court rulings have dropped and had to get your professional opinion on cases uh, while you're, like, skimming through the opinions. It sure was an interesting last couple weeks of that session, wasn't it? It was, and and I also enjoyed listening to listeners' perspectives on it. Um, it's a lot for all of us to process, isn't it, John? It is. And, you know, I think that is one of the beauties of working here at WGN and getting our callers, because I think we all get in our own silos sometimes, how we feel politically. And um, I'm not accusing you of this, but other people, including myself. And it is refreshing to hear from everybody. I mean, this is why we are a divided country in many ways, but if, if only we could have all the civility that our listeners share with me and with everyone else, we, we might be okay. I don't know. It's almost reaffirming, even if I do disagree with a caller, that we just we all are very cordial to each other. I think we do lose sight sometimes, and this is, this is winding away a little bit, Professor, but that for the most part, most of us are okay having disagreements and having conversations about it. Hey, John, you know, that's the premise of our uh, democratic institutions is that we are going to disagree and that we have um, we have a, we have several methods for working through our disagreements. Um, and the idea is that uh, out of our discussions and uh, sort of the institutional mechanisms that compel us to compromise or at least push us in that direction, um, if we make mistakes, they're not major mistakes. Uh, but occasionally there's a, there's a lot of wisdom to be found in sort of balancing different perspectives. Yeah, I was just really happy. I had a lot of callers. You may have been on the air with one of them uh, or, or may have heard who uh, she mentioned that she hadn't read Supreme Court cases before this year, but she was. And she was reading the actual opinions and the dissents. And that may seem like a little thing, but I know a lot of people don't dive into it. If nothing else, I hope that people, you know, with these major decisions upset with them or if you're cheering them on take some time to read through their thoughts i think that can make us all better citizens it it really does and the the fact that we can read them on our own and think for ourselves is powerful so and i do think for all the downsides of the internet um which are many uh an upside is democratizing information up until 20 years ago you'd have to go to a law library to find a supreme court decision um, to find the, you know, the, the original text, the full text. And now you just click and there it is. So it's good for us to read and to, to learn along the way. All right. I'm going to take off my rose colored glasses now. Okay. <laughs> Cause I, def- I'll do the same. I definitely put them on to start the conversation. Maybe we'll end with that too. Um, the, the the polls out there take them what you will about how much people have confidence in the supreme court and it's not a great worded question cuz what does that mean but they're historically low right now and they were historically low or trending that way before the roe decision or the dobbs decision i should say the overthrowing roe is this a danger to the court that people don't have confidence or trust in it it is a danger, John, and and let me take us back a long way okay. to the late 1600s. Okay, and I'll I'll close the gap quickly. <laughs> but the the main the main thought behind our government and our constitution 
is government uh, by the consent of the people. Um, and that comes from a, an English political philosopher named John Locke. And he had a huge influence on our constitutional framers. And he has an influence on us today. We all believe in the idea that we should have government by the, uh, the consent of a majority. Um, and also uh, consent of the minority who don't approve of a particular policy. That's the foundation for what makes our institutions work. So what does it mean? I mean, no, there's no pollster that goes out and says, do you consent to this Supreme Court decision? We measure it, as you're saying, imprecisely in terms of do you approve or do you have confidence in? But when you see a number that low, it gets back to what John Locke was talking about in the late 1600s, which is that number means that people are not comfortable with where their governing institutions are, particularly the court. And that is a problem for us, John, because there's no quick fix for that. Once you lose that approval, that that confidence, it's really hard to get it back. When you say uh, and you talk about the idea of it not only being the consent of the majority, but the consent of the minority, I guess what you're suggesting is that even if the opinion is not on the side that you agree with, you agree to follow the, the law, the rules set forth. And that's kind of this invisible thread that holds it all together. That's that's spot on. It, it's inevitable that we're going to disagree and we're going to have major disagreements. But what what it feels like we have um, we're moving toward is um, not recognizing that the court is even legitimate. I mean, there are there, there are there are very hard feelings about what the court has done. And there were hard feelings before this time. You know, people on the right who who have strong disagreements with Roe versus Wade. They have a similar feeling that the court is somehow illegitimate uh, for rendering that ruling. So now we've got sort of two separate silos, left and right, that really question the legitimacy of the court. Um, and it's sort of the most obvious indicator of that is when you talk about um, packing the court, increasing the number, diluting the influence of a conservative majority. Um, but prior to that, um, when you had Mitch McConnell not even schedule uh, meetings or a hearing uh, for Merrick Garland when he was President Obama's appointee, that's a very damaging thing to do under our Constitution. It, it, it's, these, it's, a, it's another way of running down uh, the, the sacred nature of the constitutional system that was devised for us. I'm glad you brought that up, not only the Mitch McConnell thing, but the idea of packing the court, because I wonder if the confidence in the court is artificially lower, not necessarily solely based on the decisions the court has rendered, but the, the political football that politicians make the Supreme Court, it almost sets it up to be a failure No, on one side or the other. Right. I mean, so um, since the Robert Bork hearings, um, things have gone from bad to worse to off. Can you so just really quickly recap for people that may listeners that may not have been alive or that don't remember the Bork situation? If you could sum it up in 15 to 20 seconds. Yeah. Judge Bork was a, a very highly respected uh, judge in conservative circles and a lightning rod for criticism among um, um, um lawyers, um, politicians, and the public on the left. But but his confirmation hearing uh, for um, a Supreme Court uh, a position was um, sort of a precursor to what we've seen ever since then. Uh, and so uh, people on the right thought there was character assassination that was taking place. Um, other people thought, no, these are legitimate questions to ask of, of Judge Bork. He has extreme views. 
and uh, we've never gotten out of that rut. Uh, and and in fact, it's gotten deeper for us. Yeah, and it has been kind of steady along the way. There have been some, you know, confirmations. I know Ruth Bader Ginsburg was overwhelming, but even when you get into the Obama nominations of Kagan and Sotomayor, you start to see you don't see those long, uh, you know, 80, 96 to nothings that you you may have seen before. And I and I imagine just diving into that alone. It, I, I and I got an argument with uh, Dean Vicamar about this, a discussion I should say about the role of the Senate. And in my mind, it's always been like just make sure they're qualified and move on. Dean Vicamar and other people say no, scrutiny is imp- a really important part of this process. I imagine that is actually kind of a delicate balance. I don't think politicians handle it delicately, but there needs to be some oversight of the Senate, right? Doesn't there? Sure, there does, um, and I think fundamentally you're you're looking for. Um, well, I personally, let's just say that I I want somebody who has judicial experience and temperament. Um, so let me just get real specific about it, mm-hmm. uh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett. I have followed her scholarship. She is a a very bright conservative scholar. She spent most of her career. Um, at Notre Dame Law School, which is a highly respected law school. She had no experience as a judge until she was named to the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Um, Then I think it's fair to ask, um, what is your experience with managing uh, a a judicial system of being a judge? Um, I'm not personalizing it. If she were on the left, I would have the same question. Um, At some level, being a judge is a complicated job, and you shouldn't have on-the-job training when um, you're you're new to this. By the way, this criticism holds for judges who have been liberals uh, on the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. uh, going back in time. So um, my criticism about uh, her recent elevation, you could take that uh, to judges on the left, but but I, I think that's where that's where the Senate's head should be, uh, is what do we know about your not only ability to manage cases, if you will, which I really take to be your temperament, your openness to argument, your openness to to what are the facts and 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 listening with an open mind. But beyond that, I think it, what we should be looking at is what can we infer about your future decision making based on your past decision making? Now, I think those are fair game questions. All right. We're just getting started. We'll have more with uh, Professor Michael Leroy in just a few more minutes. I want to ask him about packing the court. We kind of alluded to it there. It's what a lot of people want to do. Is it a smart thing to do? Will that continue to erode confidence in the court? We'll get into that after we get a look at the news here on 720 WGN. 720 WGN, John Hansen here on Let's Get Legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association, chatting with uh, U of I Professor Michael Leroy about uh, how people view the Supreme Court after this tumultuous session. Uh, Agree or disagree, there were some major decisions that came down, and some people have uh, said on the left that the court should be packed, and we've been talking about, uh, you know, whether people have confidence in the Supreme Court right now. And I got to ask, Professor Leroy, what's your thoughts on packing the court? The term is loaded, okay? Right. right. <laughs> so when you say packing the court, that, that sounds like a, a bad thing. It sounds like it's purely political. Judge uh, Richard Posner, who is considered the, the best judge 
of, of our past two or three generations who never was on the Supreme Court, University of Chicago professor, a fixture in, in the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals here in Chicago until he retired a few years ago. He suggested, and I can't remember his number, 19 or 17, but it was a large number. His argument was twofold. One, other uh, Western democracies have much larger Supreme Courts. So we are an outlier with a smaller court. And two, uh, with a smaller court, you magnify the influence of one vote. If you had 19 votes versus nine, you would dilute the voting power of any single judge. You would also dilute the happenstance of one president names three, another president names one, and then you get this very politicized confirmation process, which is aimed at blocking people or tearing people down. Because if, if you're looking at one out of 19 versus one out of nine, the stakes are a lot lower. So I do think it would be a good idea. It would help to stabilize our institutions if we went to a much larger system. But if it's framed as packing, and if it's also framed as something, a response to sort of political revenge because, um, you know, one party's guy didn't get to or nominee didn't get to be reviewed, um, then then it goes back to where we started our conversation, which is low confidence in the court. But I don't know if I have an answer for how to make people have more confidence in the Supreme Court. Well, I, I don't have an answer per se. Um you know, just another way of tackling the the size of the court issue uh, is to impose term limits. I mean, look, the Constitution was set up uh, with an amendatory feature, um, and, and we have changed. Uh, we've put, in effect, term limits on the presidency that weren't in the original document. Right. We can, you know, if you can do that, you certainly can do it for Supreme Court justices. That would be another way to say, look, you know, it, the reality is we're going to be at nine um, but what you could do is you could create just more turnover. You could also have a mandatory retirement age. Um, that's another way you can handle it. And those would be less inflammatory uh, and, and still sort of drive in the direction of not entrenching um, either a conservative or a liberal majority for 20, 30, 40 years. Right. I just for the most part, that's going to require politicians coming together. <laughs> in some way yeah. and i and i only laugh at it i mean it's it's deadly serious i mean i mean i just don't see which side approaches the other and says here's a potential compromise so that we don't tear our country apart um i did want to ask you know we talk about the you know reaction after dobbs there have been other decisions in the past where the court that i'm sure people on the other side felt the same way that many on the left feel now do you understand what i'm asking yeah, I do. Um, uh, and we got well, through you know, it, is what I'm saying. You know, it's it's interesting to think uh, about how revolutionary Brown versus Board of Education was, mm-hmm. um, which um, overturned Plessy, uh, which created a doctrine of separate but equal. But um, it wasn't only in the South, John. It was throughout much of the United States that um, schools and public facilities had uh, separate but equal provisions. It's It certainly was true in, in many parts of Illinois. Um, and so that what that decision was ahead of its time. Now, uh, for those of us who are here, what, like 70 years later, it, it's, it's um, 
it's it's revolting to think of a world where there are separate facilities by race. I mean, it's just hard to think about. But I, I think that's an illustration of a court being ahead of its time. But I also think it's an illustration of a court that was true to the original principles of our nation's founding, which is that we're all created equal um, that we have certain inalienable rights. And so in that sense, sometimes when a court is um, ahead of its time, it's really hearkening back to our original founding. I guess I'm just trying to find solace that no matter which side you're on, that, that the ship is going to keep going forward. Do you think that there could be movement in this country for a privacy amendment? I feel like we don't, it's this argument of whether it's enshrined in our constitution or not is age old. Uh, do you think a privacy amendment satisfies some of the concerns that the justices have about, you know, what what rights we do have in terms of privacy? You know, that's such a good question, John, because that that's one of the foundational principles of Alito's decision in uh, in Dobbs. There are people who are very skeptical that he really means what he's saying uh, because of the rest of the opinion, mm -hmm. which seems so harshly directed against terminating the life of an unborn child or fetus, depending on your perspective or terminology. But if he were here, he would say uh, the people have the final say. And to your and that really sort of tees up your question, like, do you really mean it? What would happen if there was a constitutional amendment and it went through all the hoops uh, the super majorities and then you have a lawsuit that says uh but the unborn children did not get to vote on this or their interests were not taken into account uh, or a less dramatic way of putting it is um uh, can the people um enact a uh, a constitutional amendment that does not reflect what the values were at the time our constitution was formed. Right. And so, you know, I think, I think that's an interest in theory. Yes. I mean, the people have the last say, but in practice, the, the way that, um, that Dobbs is written and the way it, it resets the analysis of constitutional liberties and rights, I personally have my doubts about uh, whether that would be beyond the reach of the Supreme Court as it's presently constituted. All right. Well, we're going to get into more with Professor Leroy after this here on 720 WGN. Let's get legal, powered by the Illinois State Bar Association. 720 WGN, continuing our conversation with Professor Leroy of the University of Illinois. We've been talking about people's uh, distrust or not having faith in the Supreme Court. But for a couple centuries, we've uh, followed what they said, even if we agree or disagree. Do you have any concern, Professor Leroy, on either side of the aisle, red or blue states, would stop following what the Supreme Court says? And there's not much recourse. The court doesn't have a military or a police force. I, I do have that concern. When when we started this conversation, we're talking about a poll that shows something like 25 percent of Americans have confidence in the Supreme Court. And by the way, let's let's reflect on the fact that in uh, many states, judges are elected. They're not appointed. They don't have life tenure. And that means they're, quote unquote, closer to the people and they're more responsive uh, to an electorate. Um, we have an elected uh, state Supreme Court here. So um, and Wisconsin, which has its own very turbulent uh, state Supreme yes. Court, they have an elected uh, election process. And, and that's a roundabout way of saying that if, if the public doesn't have confidence in the Supreme Court 
and the Supreme Court issues any particular ruling. It, it doesn't have to be about abortion. It can be something that is different. At the end of the day, the Supreme Court is highly dependent on the coordinate branches of government to carry out what the order says. And the bottom line, John, is it comes down to either we agree to abide by the ruling, win, lose, agree or disagree, or we resist it. And and then the, the Supreme Court then becomes kind of like a group of nine professors where we have opinions and we publish things. But gosh, you know, we don't have a way of kind of implementing or executing what we publish. You know, you get a judge in a particular jurisdiction to to carry it out and and it doesn't happen. So I am worried about that, John. It's happened before. And in some ways, the Civil War is a reflection of all of that pent up anxiety about the the Supreme Court ruling in Dred Scott, the failure of Congress to work through actions. We are heading in the direction where it's going to be more and more challenging to execute the orders of the court. Yes. Yeah, so that's a scary place to be on a Saturday afternoon. Um, it is. <laughs> I, I, and, yeah, it is. So then here's my follow-up question, and take it however you want. I do feel like, and this has happened for presidents on both sides and for people on both sides, that when they disagree, they come out harshly against it. Is it still important for our leaders to say, but we respect the court? Is it important to say those words, even if your base doesn't like to hear it, to just hold up? the institution? Because we have a lot of politicians right now saying a lot of bad things. I think it's important. And I think that's leadership. And that's my own view. Um, uh, you know, the, the problem is we, we we have these siloed news domains. It, it's hard for all of us to, it's just hard for us to be in several domains at, at the same time. And, and our politicians play to that. But I think it's very important that um, people on the left and right and center, whatever direction they're in, we need more of that leadership at the top that that just reaffirms the legitimacy of our institutions. And, and it's more than just play nice or be nice. It's the foundation for having a government, uh, the government that was established for us, the government that's worked successfully for us for the most part. Uh, certainly the Civil War is a prime example of a failure in government. But we don't want to go back to that. And so we need leadership to say, uh, folks, if you disagree, get politically active and and do something about it. But um, this is the ruling, and and that's the way it is for now. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to put the rose-colored glasses on, and All right. we have been, as you've been mentioning a couple times, through more turbulent times than this, but maybe only one, <laughs> the Civil War. I mean, obviously, there's been strife and there's been horror in our country but i i don't know if there's truly been another time we've been more divided than this there as we said at the beginning i think a lot of people are in the middle and i do feel like a bulk of this country does respect the law of the land and knows the appropriate avenues in which to try to make change if that's what you so desire and that we can keep this thing on the rails i do too i mean so um I don't think I, I think we're in a perilous period, but I don't think the the Civil War was the only perilous period in our history, which is to say we, we've gotten through other very serious uh, problems. Um, and, and so, you know, we lived through um, the period um, after World War One where there was a, a real concern about uh, sedition and communism uh, and subversion of government. 
and we were a, a very uh, anti-immigrant nation uh, and segregationist and, and um, uh, racially biased. Those were very hard times. We got through those times. There are other times. You know, the 60s weren't a picnic either. Right. The 70s weren't a picnic either for those of us who are old enough to remember that. So I I, I am really concerned January 6th is a, a one of a kind that I hope we never, ever see. And, and that's a, a very, very worrisome, uh, you know, indication of where we are. But I also think, you know, I also think it's important to realize that that we have been resilient and there is hope for the resiliency to come through again. Yeah, I, I feel that way too. And I'll probably say that till at the end. <laughs> I'll be like, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll see you there. Oh, with you. gosh. Well, sorry to, to, we went in that direction, Professor. I just do feel like no. it's important to hear and, and talk through these things. It's almost like therapy for the country to talk through what's, what's, what the past couple of years uh, have been like. Uh, agree or disagree with these decisions. I think we all agree that the temperatures are high and it's nice to have calming discussions and smart ones here on uh, WGN radio. And uh, that's what you're here for. Not me. Uh, Thanks, Professor. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, John. I enjoyed it very much.